He is good. Ah, he loves us, he loves us, he loves us. And that is the foundation of our life and our hope, God's, uh, God's love for us. Now, I hope you got uh, one of these when you walked in, but Sunday morning, November 7th, we're going to meet at 10 o'clock right here, and everybody, we're only going to have one worship gathering that morning, 10 o'clock right here. We're going to put everybody together, and it's going to be followed by tailgate. So we are going to have food and uh, a good time. Now, there'll be a TV football game on that will be broadcast, and if it's not your favorite team, it should be. We've already checked it out. <laughs> And you can go look, November 7th. The big deal will be uh, our students, junior high and high school students against the parents in a football game right over here. So if you want to cheer for the old people or the young people, but uh, we got a, a, a game going on. So our hope is this is be something you might even invite your neighbors to, your friends. Maybe to church and then the tailgate. If not, just invite them to the tailgate. But uh, invite some folks, and, and, uh, and we're going to have, uh, have fun that morning. Now, we've got, uh, huh, there's a birthday today. You guys know Sharia? It is absolutely her birthday today. That doesn't often happen on Sundays. Now, I would lead us in singing happy birthday, and there would be seven men who would love the key I picked. Do we have any vocalists here that can get us started in a key, or you want me to do it? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Is she here? There she is. Happy birthday, dear Sharia. Happy birthday to you. All right, happy birthday. And, and we are thankful for you. And I'm thankful that I have skin on top of my head. Again, from Sharia's mother, there is always something for which to be grateful. There it is. So, so I'm grateful. Now, now, we're going to talk about something today. It's a phrase that I remember, oh man, back to junior high. And uh, this subject of being, uh, y'all know I grew up going to church, doing all for the glory of God. I'm going to tell you for, for my early life, whenever this subject was brought up, I immediately just felt guilt and assumed God was disappointed in me. Because for a good share of my life, if I analyzed my motives for the choices I made and for the way I lived, it was not the glory of God. It was my immediate pleasure. So when we heard this sermon, then I went, okay, I've disappointed God yet again. And I'm going to go out and try harder. The try harder usually made it till somewhere in the middle of Sunday afternoon. And then I went back to just pursuing my, my own pleasures. It wasn't until my, my early 20s when I really finally embraced and understood the love of the Father, what we've been singing about, that this passage and what Paul says here, doing all for the glory of God, really made sense wasn't until I really looked at the depth and the magnitude of my sin, the holiness of God, and realized that he should damn me. But he doesn't. Because of his great love. I love watching guys dunk basketballs. 
hit golf balls. I love seeing almost anybody do something with excellence. But once I experience the forgiveness of God in Christ and embraced more fully and understood who he is and what he's done, oh man, life then becomes about wanting to point people to God that they might share in the same experience. Now, if my wife would hear, she would affirm I have, don't do everything to the glory of God. But it finally made sense. This idea is rooted in trying to help others have this experience. This desire to be an instrument where we're pointing others to his grace and to his love and his forgiveness. So we're going to be in a passage where Paul is going to continue to unpack this. My hope here is today, nobody leaves feeling guilty. Nobody leaves feeling like they've disappointed God. But we leave here going, all right, what a privilege we have. It shows us. I've told you before, I would have come up with another plan. But he chose us to be the instruments through which his beauty, his glory, and his love is seen. Now, I think there are three basic principles we're going to walk through this text. Now, we're going to walk through a lot of text, so we're going to move fairly quickly. And if you have questions, call me, text me, and I'd love to talk about it. So we're going to move through a lot of text fairly quickly, but three, three principles to help us do all to the glory of God. The first is this. We're going to avoid anything that's associated with evil spiritual influences. Picking it up, last week's text, remember Paul compared the Corinthians and us to, to the Jews who were not living by faith. Make sure you're not them. Picking it up, here he goes. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Lord, as we pull apart this text and some subsequent paragraphs, I pray that your spirit would guide us. Convince us that what we're all involved in right now is a spiritual activity. And in this spiritual activity, my prayer is that you will draw our minds and our hearts to yourself and to the truth of who you are. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So we avoid anything that is associated with evil spiritual influences. And he's going to talk here about how life is spiritual. Now, I've shared a quote with you before. It's from a guy named Timothy Warner. And he talked about American evangelicals, and he said this. American evangelicals, this is my paraphrase, are secular humanists with a spiritist vocabulary. Now, it's who I was early in my life. 
very comfortable with a spiritual vocabulary, but life is just not quite frankly all that spiritual. Come on, man. We were raised in America. We're empirical folks, facts, stuff you can touch, stuff you can feel. So he's going to use three illustrations here. The first one is communion and, and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament to try and help us understand there's a spiritual element to this life. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, from those things he's already dealt with that, going back to chapter 8. I speak as to sensible people. Judge yourselves for what I say. The cup of blessing, the communion cup, that we bless. Now, notice what he says here. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Now, participation here is that word from that word that you might be familiar with. Koinonia, you all have heard that word? Is it not a fellowship? In the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation, a fellowship in the body of Christ? Now, I think in response to Roman Catholics' view of the sacraments, and particularly it's talk about Eucharist and communion, where they need to participate in communion because God, through that process, is continuing to justify them by, by pouring out his grace as they participate in that sacrament. Everybody familiar with this? We don't call communion a sacrament because we don't want to confuse it with that. We call it an ordinance. And we emphasize the symbolism of communion because we believe, which is absolutely true, that when Jesus died, he died once and for all. And when we have faith in him, we are justified and we are forgiven. So our theology is different. I don't think you can overemphasize the symbolic element of communion, but I think Paul's actually saying there's more to it than just the symbol. And watch this as we build the argument. I think he's trying to help us understand there's a symbol, there's a, a participation with Christ when we partake in those symbols of his body and blood. Is it symbolic of what he did on the cross? You hear me say, yes, yes, yes. But if we make it exclusively symbolism, I think there's an element that we miss. Now he goes on, because there is one bread, we who are, are, are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. So he's still talking about communion. We are connected with God. When we participate in communion together, y'all understand we're going to be doing that later today? I'm convinced it's more than symbolism. Jesus isn't justifying us through this. That is not good theology. But Paul's saying there's a connection we have with Christ, and he's also saying there's a connection we have with one another. We maybe have different politics. We maybe think we should respond to COVID differently. We maybe like the Dodgers rather than the Giants, or even the Angels, or the Twins. But we're one. When we partake of these elements, we are connected with Jesus, and we're connected with one another. Because life is spiritual. There's a spiritual dimension to this. And then he's going to go on. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. And the priests got to eat some of the food in that sacrificial system. What he's trying to point out here is there was a spiritual dimension. When those priests were eating that food that was offered to God, don't you think that there's not a spiritual dimension to their participation? Now he's going to go on. And he's going to talk about food offered idols, which he introduced in chapter 8. And he's gone on some, some rabbit trails related to this, but he's still going there. And don't miss this point. 
There's no God behind the idol. He dealt with that in chapter 8. He's going to affirm that again here in chapter 10. Meat is therefore innocuous. Meat is meat. It's just meat. And there's no God behind that idol. Dealt with that in chapter 8. But now he's going to add another idea here as he develops their theology. Though there's no idol behind the meat, when this is offered to idols, there are spiritual forces at work. Namely, demons. So though the meat in itself is innocuous, he already told us back in chapter 8, told the Corinthians, don't eat it, lest you hinder a weaker brother's faith. Now he's going to tell us there's no God behind it, but those who participate in it, demons are there. There are evil, sports, evil forces. Verse 19 then, picking it up again. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? You already dealt with that in chapter 8. The answer here to that question is no. It's just meat. Uh, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. There is one God. He already dealt with this in chapter 8. One God. Only one. So these idols that represent God or people think they're gods, there's no God there. He's not changing his tune. He's being theologically consistent. No, here's what I do imply, literally state, that what pagans, those who don't love God, sacrifice, they actually are sacrificing this to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So chapter 8, why shouldn't they have meat offered to idols? Because that could offend a weaker brother, and they could sink a polytheistic many-god thing is okay. Here's the second reason they shouldn't eat meat offered to idols. Though there's not literally a god behind it, Corinthians, there are spiritual forces of evil at work in life. I don't want you to be naive. Though you know the meat is just meat, when those folks go to it with evil intent, there's an evil dimension to this. So we're going to participate only with those healthy spiritual influences of God. Because God is really not pleased when we dabble with evil spiritual forces and don't realize that they exist and they are there for our demise and to hurt others. So you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Don't do this. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Don't do this. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? God doesn't really like it when we divide our loyalties. These evil spiritual forces, they are not innocuous. They exist. Don't participate with them. Are we stronger than he, than God? The answer to that is, here's what he's saying. Don't fool around with this stuff. Don't play with these evil spiritual forces. Don't need to be afraid. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. But don't be dinging around and dabbling and playing around with real evil spiritual forces. It's the first thing we do to bring glory to God in all things. We don't fool around with evil stuff. Second thing, and I hope you recognize this as a theme he's been building since chapter 8, 
as I've suggested before, it's going to go all the way to chapter 13. Now, why do you think Paul spends six chapters talking essentially about our loving others? Why do you think he's going to spend all that time? Anybody want to speculate? Yeah. Because <laughs> we're so good at it. Guys, don't miss the big idea here. Back in chapter 8, he said, we could have right theology, but if we're not loving somebody else in the promotion of loving theolo- promoting our theology, we are sinning against Christ. Everybody remembers that? We can be right and be sinning against Christ. I've told you before. Now, I'm still learning this too. Y'all understand, but I do dream of churches actually getting this and living it out more thoroughly. It's God's primary way of evangelizing and promoting his glory. So we live in consideration of other people's spiritual lives. Now we're going on to the next paragraph, having remembered the last paragraph. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his... Oh, man, how many of you are getting tired of that? (laughs) I'm waiting for the text that says... Seek your own good and figure out a way to motivate your neighbor to seek your good. (laughs) That's the text I'm looking for. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. We'll pull this apart because he's going to get into specific practical uh, uh, encouragement for them. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now here I don't mean your conscience, but his. So for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with, partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Here's again the big idea. We don't dabble in evil stuff that we know is evil, but we live in consideration of other people's spiritual lives. In chapter 8, he was talking about weaker believers. He was talking about those early on their spiritual journey. Now he's talking about those who yet don't love Christ. Huh. Like we're supposed to love everybody. Huh. Huh. We're supposed to glorify God with everybody? Ha! And wait till you see that Vikings game on 7th. I hope you are loving. Anyway, here we go. We, oh, did I give away who's on November 7th? They're in the tank. We have lots of freedom. Look at the argument here. He's going to suggest we have lots of freedom here as Christ. All things are lawful, in quotes. That's what the Corinthians are saying. And I think Paul is affirming that generally that is true. He's not means everything is lawful. But there's freedom in Christ, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are I grew up in a Christianity before I really got the gospel that I'm going to tell you, I did not feel like there was much freedom. I grew up remembering the long list of things I wasn't supposed to participate in. When I hang with unbelievers, it still feels like to me their view of Christianity is all the stuff that's going to bring them pleasure that they think they have to forfeit if they come to Christ. I have lots of words that I can use. I'm just going to say it this way. It's a really lousy picture of the gospel. 
And once I actually experienced God's grace, I realized that we have unbelievable freedoms in Christ. And most of those things I was told, well, there's some of those things that are not good. But you guys are following me, right? There is all kinds of freedom in Christ, and I celebrate that freedom. But Paul's trying to help us understand, for those of us who love God, who have experienced the gospel, who have as this desire to glorify him just Living by our freedoms is not our ultimate priority. What he's going to suggest is, in one sense, imply it's not actually lawful if what our freedoms do hurt others. We always consider what is productive, even though we have freedom. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. We can be right we can be right and actually be wrong if we're not building up. Now, I don't know about you, but I like being right and I like winning in every context. I like enjoying my freedoms in every context. And in Christ, we got freedoms galore! But we want to glorify him. And so we're asking in our interactions, in our choices, how are other people looking at this? And is it benefiting them? We forgo our freedoms to positively influence others. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good. And he means his own immediate good, not our ultimate good in glorifying God. We all understand this, right? Here's the reality, and it wasn't until my early 20s that I figured this out, that there's more joy in glorifying God than getting my own immediate temporal pleasures. And that's what he's talking about here, is foregoing those immediate temporal pleasures. Let no one seek his own good, his immediate temporal pleasures, but rather the good of his neighbor, because what the Christianity is about, there's actually more joy in that. Yeah, I could eat that meat, but I'm not going to because it'll be better for my Christian friend and it will be better for my friend who doesn't yet love Christ, so I'm going to forgo the meat I can eat because there's more joy in that. Even though it was steak, tenderloin, medium rare with just the right spices and plenty of ketchup. Now I'm rethinking what Paul said. <laughs> he's going to go on and he's going to use this illustration that he's been dealing with since chapter 8, food offered to idols. Now here's one of the points he's going to say. I, it was, I had trouble finding wording here that I love, so I came up with hypervigilance. Hyper what he's going to say here now as we go into this is, don't go crazy on looking for spiritual influences. Don't go nuts. I'm not asking you all to be a meat inspector and figure out exactly where this meat came from. That would be stupid. But do, all, do avoid all practices where you actually know there's evil intent been involved. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, your conscience. So you go to the market. It's a polytheistic culture, right? Syncretism. There was a decent chance that the meat you were buying has been offered to idols. Relax. 
When you go to the guy and you're looking for the hot dogs over the counter, you don't have to ask him what happened to this meat before. Don't go nuts. Just buy the meat, go home, and eat it. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. You got it. Everything was ultimately created and is good. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you were disposed to go eat, they don't love Christ. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. They don't love Christ. There's a decent chance again that the meat they could offer you has been offered idols. Relax. Enjoy the meat. Enjoy the meal. Have fun. However, if someone says to you, this has been offered, to, uh, offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it unless you know that it's been offered. Then don't participate. We make choices to positively influence others. We will absolutely give up our liberties for others. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who has formed you. And for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my deliberate? Well, let's get, wait a second. So here's what he's talking about. I go to a non-Christian's home and they say, hey, by the way, this meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it then. Because what you could potentially be doing is misleading that non-Christian brother and sister. And they could be thinking, hey, idols and Jesus, they all go together, no big deal. So if you know that, for the sake of their conscience and how they may misinterpret it, then don't eat it. And then Paul anticipates what some of the Corinthians that think they're more mature would likely say. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? I have freedom in Christ. It's just meat. He's anticipating the question. He's already answered that. In the next paragraph, he's going to answer it more fully. And why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? Why would people talk ill of me even though I know it's just meat? That's unfair. So back to, back to our, our three principles here. We're going to avoid stuff associated with evil influences. We're going to live in consideration of other spiritual lives. And I'm bringing you right back to the big idea. Because Paul does. We live to bring glory to God. Happily. If you're ever in a place where you're not happily deferring your own personal benefits, immediate pleasures for the glory of God, I'm going to encourage you not to do it. It just comes across as obligation and have to and legalism. And I'm going to tell you, that's like the worst impression we can ever give of the gospel. So whether you eat or drink, in this context, meat offered to idols is the primary subject, but he's talking about anything. Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. He's covering everybody there. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul finishes this way. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Here's the reality for those of us who love Christ. For those of us who have experienced his forgiveness... There is nothing and there's no one better than God.
that we who should spend eternity separated from him are forgiven and we do nothing. Jesus does it all. Ha! There's nothing that lights us up like Jesus. Absolutely no one and nothing. And this experience of Christ is so good. We live to grow in that experience and help other people have that experience. It's the motive of our lives. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, and I think he means everything here. Do all to the glory of God that he might be recognized for who he is. Loving, gracious, forgiving, merciful, faithful. Paul didn't come up with this idea of loving others. You guys remember Jesus saying something about love? He said, this is how people are going to know you're my disciples. Father, forgive us and help us to get this more. This is how people are going to know that we belong to Jesus. By our love for one another. Started back in chapter 8, well, back in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. It's pretty much in every Bible book. I think the biblical authors understand we all would like other people to love us. Let me tell you how this works. We would all like other people to forfeit their rights for us. I am not an exception to that category. It's the way the world works, guys. It's only the power of Christ that gives this different empowering and, and allows us to express something that we can't find out in the world. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense. And I love this. He's trying to cover everybody here to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Here's what Paul's saying. I don't care who you're interacting with. Doesn't matter to me. For those of us that love Christ, we are always asking, how do I respond and interact in a way that will demonstrate God's love because it has so impacted me? I don't think marriage is and families are an exception to this. Again, nobody talks to my wife about any of this, right? I don't want her to know what I actually understand. Just as I try to please everyone and everything, and he's not talking about compromising on significant pieces of theology. It's not loving to compromise on what we would call essential theology. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about less important stuff. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. That they may be saved. Our experience with Jesus just so motivates us to help other people experience that delight. That's why we live this way. And nothing gives us greater joy than experiencing God's salvation ourselves. 
Second on the list is helping other people. Lots of places to find the light. Nothing better than enjoying God. Second best place is helping other people enjoy him. Folks, that is the purpose and meaning of life. I heard a pastor say, well, the meaning of life is hard to understand. I'm like, you need to go back and read your Bible. The meaning of life is to enjoy God. And from that, help other people enjoy him. That's it. There isn't any more to it. And Paul's in a fabulous example of bringing glory to God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try and please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me. Because this is the source. This is the power. As I am of Christ. Paul's not making this stuff up. You guys heard about Jesus? You guys heard about him, right? Innocent, holy lamb of God, the only guy that shouldn't be damned. And yet he went to the cross. Forfeited all his rights and privileges. All of them. For us. It's our experience of Jesus that empowers us to live this way. So here's what I'm going to suggest as we leave here today. We want to avoid all spiritual influences. Now, this is a tough one in our culture. I'm going to say some things. This is not a prescription. I'm just going to tell you of my concerns and where I see spiritual influences that I think we sometimes may be underestimating. Y'all hear me not making a prescription? You with me? Occult stuff on uh, the movies, TV, anywhere. Tell you, a lot of the Disney productions, particularly for kids, feels like to me they're spiritual influences. Ouija boards. Nasty stuff. You guys know uh, we got a holiday coming up? Reformation Day. There we go. I wasn't actually referencing Reformation Day, though it is a big day. Martin Luther, we're a big fan. There's another holiday. Anybody know what's coming up? All Saints Day. You are a tough crowd. Veterans Day. Uh, you know, there are a book series out there, and I, I'm not given any prescription. Uh, Halloween. Halloween has always bewildered me. We live in a culture, it feels like to me increasingly, where parents are going to extraordinary lengths to protect their kids from anything that might harm them or cause them fear. And Halloween, my entire life, has just bewildered me in that regard. You get some of my suspicion as to why it is such a popular holiday. I got a neighbor that put up decorations two weeks ago. I'm not saying anything particularly about my neighbor, but 
evil spirits, witches, demons, the devil. This is a tough one. Tough one. But tell you what Julie and I did when our kids were at home, and I'll tell you what we still do. This is a tough one. We were going to take this holiday, and Julie and I are not naive as to its origins, and we're going to use it as best we can to promote Jesus. You got kids, it's just a part of our culture. Now, these are just the choices Julie and I made. We wouldn't let our kids uh, have costumes that had any sort of evil spiritual connection. But we went out trick-or-treating with them. We had a great time interacting with other parents who didn't love Christ, walking around, picking up candy. I think back sometimes to where the conversations went. We had some fabulous conversations as we were walking around picking up candy for Halloween. Again, this is not a prescription for y'all. This is, this is tough stuff. We still buy the best candy on the block. Not to celebrate Satan, but to the degree we get into conversations with our neighbors and folks and they get to know who we are. We are generous people, those of us who love Christ. Is it the right answer? This stuff is tough. Not easy. And Julie and I don't want to dabble in evil things. Have we transformed this holiday into a pro-Christ event? As best we could. We do not give out gospel tracts. Please hear me say too, right? And talk about that. We just are trusting the connections. But I think we need to be paying attention. Spiritual forces of evil. We want to be consistently assessing our willingness to forfeit our rights for the benefit of others. I'd encourage you. What rights in the last week have you forfeited for the sake of somebody else? Freedoms you had. And I believe these principles actually apply like doing the dishes. We want to always be devoted to promoting Jesus' love. What's it look like? I don't think it's usually big. I think in America, we think the gospel's promoted by big, big events, big this, big that. Jesus said, how about you just love one another? I'm not opposed to big events. I'm not opposed to big. But his plan was to spread the gospel through us to one another. We stay a little later at work to help one of our associates. We're not going to get any credit for it. The neighbor needs some help. We're just there willing to forfeit our time and our energy, maybe even our money, to assist somebody else. Got an example I was reading about. Young lady, uh, Brittany Waltner's uh, mother died. She was up for homecoming at a uh, high school in Texas. And her mother uh, died just before homecoming. She promised her mother she would still go to homecoming and she would bring her dad and 
They will go to homecoming, and who knows who is gonna who is gonna win. Young lady Nyla Covington actually became homecoming queen. It was her crown. Nyla went over to Brittany and put the crown on her head. Yeah, it was Nyla's crown. Here's what Brittany said. I just felt so like so much love from her. And I just felt so much love for her and the whole school. As soon as I got off the field, I just got hundreds of hugs from every single person in the stands. Paul makes a big deal of this because it's the foundation of how folks know we're Christians. We got the accurate doctrine, but it's the ability to express love like the world simply does not have. And the reason is because of the extraordinary impact. Everybody's looking for love. Everybody's looking to be loved. Jesus says, because we get filled up with his love, it comes out of us into others. That's who we are. We want to be pursuing and celebrating our fellowship with Jesus. Again, I tried to bring glory to God before I really met Christ. It never worked. Wherever we're at in that journey, the source of our power is our continuing to grow in our experience of Jesus' love, which just let me suggest to you, is limitless. We're never going to do this perfectly. I apologize regularly. But it grows in us as our experience of God's limitless love grows in us. So we're going to leave here conscious of loving others, but not just trying to do it. We're going to leave here ultimately committed to growing in our relationship with Christ. 